according to his promise. We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth, as always, comes through the scriptures. Would there ever be a Sunday I tell you not to turn on the scriptures? Where else would our growth come from? The book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, once again this morning, and chapter 46. 46, are we almost done? Well, there's 66 altogether, so 20 more to go. Isaiah 46, we only have 13 verses to cover, so this may be uh, a record. With only 13 verses, we ought to cover it before the uh, end of our hour. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer to ask God the Father to sanctify our thinking, to set aside distractions, to humble us under authority. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we come before you this morning thankful for the authority that your Word has over our lives. We're thankful, Father, for who you are for the nature of your character, for the nature of your truth, for the nature of our present stewardship, Father, in which the redeemed body of Christ can glorify you. I thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to obey your commands, such as studying to show ourselves approved. And Father, I ask that you would reward the hunger, reward the positive volition of your children that made today a priority. I thank you for brothers and sisters that make the Word of God a priority in their life, that are diligent to present themselves before you as workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. We thank you on this day that your Spirit will guide us into this truth, and we thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah chapter 46, we are introduced to Bel and Nebo. Isaiah 46, 1. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over. These are false gods, the preeminent gods of Babylon, father and son, and uh, they're going to lose. Bel has bowed down, Nebo stoops over, their images are consigned to the beasts and the cattle. The things that that you carry are burdensome, a load for the weary beast. They stooped over, they have bowed down together, they could not rescue the burden but have themselves gone into captivity. This is a powerful message that exposes idolatry for what it is. And it should be a great comfort to the Jewish people that are on the verge of being taken into captivity. That uh, the northern kingdom has already been swept away by Assyria. The southern kingdom is under threat and will eventually be taken away by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Babylonians. And uh, yet they can be encouraged that these false gods, these idols of Babylon, the nation that's taking them into captivity, the idols themselves will be taken captive. The very idols themselves will be loaded on ox carts and hauled away to, uh, to other regions by their conquerors. And this is a prophecy of what would happen uh, that Cyrus will personally take care of when Cyrus uh, conquers Babylon. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same, and even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it. 
I will carry you and I will bear you. I will deliver you. And the faithfulness of the true God, in contrast with the uselessness of the false gods, I don't think could be more vivid than is being described right here. Uh, What kind of God needs to be carried around from place to place? Because they can't carry themselves, they can't move themselves, they can't speak, they can't do anything. They're just statues that have been fashioned by the hand of man. As opposed to the true creator God of the universe who holds us, who carries us. And the tenderness that is shown if you're carrying an infant, if you're carrying a newborn, if you're holding a baby, or on the other end of the age spectrum. Remember, it's, it's only in between birth and old age that we're rather self-ambulatory. Otherwise, uh, we require assistance, all right? And on the older end of things as well, uh, help just standing up, help walking from place to place, and possibly being carried from place to place if, in fact, we... Uh, reach an age where we're no longer mobile. All right, and that's what we see here. Uh, you probably spotted the old age reference in verse 4, and yet there's something beyond that called the graying years. And even then, God and His faithfulness is going to be there. From generation to generation, God is faithful. So as we start this, let's take a look at these two Babylonian gods. Yahweh is calling out two Babylonian gods and describing their pending Captivity. Remember, Yahweh is, is the Lord God of Israel. This is the most holy name for the creator God of the universe, for the self-existent I Am. He reveals himself to Moses as Yahweh and gives the significance of Yahweh as the I Am of the universe. He is the only I Am, the self-existent, uncreated, uncaused being uh, anywhere. And uh, the Tetragrammaton YHWH is the, is the English transliteration of the Hebrew text. There are no vowels. As such, it's a little bit awkward to pronounce. Uh, and so Yahweh is an is a, is a approximation of the pronunciation. Also Jehovah is an approximation of the pronunciation. Um, this is the name that is so holy the Jewish people will not vocalize it. They will not say Yahweh as I have done five times already this morning. They won't vocalize it like that. They, instead, they substitute Adonai in their worship, in their liturgy, in their singing, in their conversation. All right, And this was uh, made very real to me last Saturday because I attended a synagogue here in Austin for hours and hours last Saturday morning, about 8.30 in the morning until 12.30 in the uh, afternoon, and every single time they're reading it in their Hebrew text, they're singing it in their songs, every single time we came across that tetragrammaton, the YHWH, they would substitute Adonai every single time, and I actually liked it. (laughs) It helped me because they sang so fast and I was losing the place in the reading on, uh, and, and, but when I heard them sing Adonai, I just, my eye would jump down there and find the next, find the next Yahweh in the text. I get caught back up in their singing. Well, Yahweh is the real God. Yahweh is true. The rest of these are fallen angels, created beings, posing as gods themselves. And they are the false gods, uh, the little g gods, lowercase g, gods of the nations, including Bel and Nebo. Bel, in the Hebrew, Baal, um, or the Greek, is a general title meaning Lord or Master. And we're very familiar with Baal because of Baal. Uh, because in the Western Semitic, in the, in the Pentateuch, and in the earlier books of the Old Testament, the Jews were constantly encountering uh, a lot of Baal worship, B-A, 
apostrophe A-L. And the, in, in the Western Semitic, it's Baal, spelled slightly differently. The Western Semitic is, is the uh, Baal god of, of uh, uh, the Phoenicians and, this, and the uh, Syrians and so forth. The, dif- the distinction between West Semitic and East Semitic is, is really no big deal other than spelling issues and pronunciation issues. Uh, Babylonian and, Acad- and Assyrian both descend from Akkadian, which is an Eastern Semitic rather than a Western Semitic language. In any event, Baal simply means sir. <laughs> it means Lord. It means master. Uh, in a lot of respects, it means the same thing that Adonai means, all right? Except Israel knows, knows very well that Yahweh Elohim is the true Lord of the universe, and Baal is simply uh, an, an impersonator, a false god such as Satan who wants to be like the Most High God and claims that he can be. And in uh, many respects, Baal became a title, almost like Pharaoh. Different human beings could have the title of Pharaoh and, and accept that as the supreme ruler of Egypt as a, as a title. Uh, likewise, Baal kind of became a title, became uh, known as the supreme god of the, of the uh, Akkadians and the Assyrians and the Babylonians, uh, even if they had to plug different gods into it from time to time. Marduk is a good example. Marduk was the national god of Babylon who earned the title of Baal uh, at a certain point when Babylon was able to overthrow uh, Assyria. All right? And then so it's applied presently in our text today and by Isaiah's era, the title of Baal was assigned to Marduk or Marduk, okay? The patron god of the Babylonian nation. Now he has a son and that son is Nebo. All right? Nebo or Nabo or Nabo, depending if you're reading English, Hebrew, or Greek. Now, he is the son of Marduk, okay? And so we have a father-son imagery at work here, which might be not so surprising if you expect that Satan likes to imitate a lot of things. He likes to counterfeit a lot of things. Why would he not try to counterfeit a father-son tandem as uh, he attacks the legitimacy, of course, of God the Father and and Jesus Christ? Uh, Nebo is the son of Marduk. Interestingly enough, Nebo is the god of wisdom and writing. Nebo is the god to the Babylonians, the god of wisdom and writing. Now, that's very significant because as far as the Babylonians were concerned, uh, they were the pinnacle of, of humanity in terms of wisdom and writing. Uh, they had a system of wisdom. They had uh, mathematics. They had astronomy. They had all of uh, uh, physics. They had science and everything. They viewed themselves as the pinnacle of human achievement. So much so, of course, that even the Egyptians and the Greeks borrowed from these guys. These are the guys that we can blame for the 360 degrees in a circle or 60 minutes in an hour or 60 seconds in a minute. These are the mathematicians that gave us things that still continue to modern times. And so the God of all that wisdom would be quite significant. The God of all that writing would be quite significant. And in fact, uh, we have here really a, a parallel to the Logos from the New Testament, where Jesus is the Logos, and the understanding that it is the Son who comes to communicate. It is the Son who comes to reveal the Father, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we behold His glory. And so what you and I can relate to is the beauty of God the Father and God the Son, and how precious is the Son to the Father. 
and why it is that we want to glorify the Son to please the Father. Everything that we take for granted in the church age in our stewardship in the New Testament has been counterfeited a long time ago, going back to even ancient times with counterfeit uh, father-son imagery in much of their pantheon. I do got to say, though, that they, the pantheon had what, what we don't have. They also had goddesses. <laughs> okay, they had these fornicating goddesses that Nebo has a mother, I got to tell you that, all right? And Nebo has a wife, and there's a lot of fornication that goes along with these gods. Show and tell, Tom, I can give you some pictures. That's Nebo on the right, by the way. Um, isn't he impressive? <laughs> isn't that a god you just want to bow down to and worship? And, you know, I mean, idols are as impressive as man can make them. All right? And if you can make it bigger and taller, then it's going to be more impressive than the last God that you couldn't make so big and so tall. Um, And if you get conquered by somebody who pulls your God down and carts it off somewhere, that's that's insulting. Okay? That's sad. Um, But clearly, the, the reason why the Babylonians were supreme over the Assyrians, because their gods defeated the Assyrian gods. All right? And so it's proof of the, uh, of the divinity of, or the, the power of these gods. Now on the left is a stone. It's a, it's a tablet that was written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, uh, bragging in so many words about how amazing he is and how amazing Babylon is and how because he faithfully served Bel and Nebo, because he faithfully served Bel and Nebo, uh, he is now the supreme uh, being on planet Earth. And uh, if you, I suppose, would learn Sanskrit, <laughs> and you could read that for yourself, or I could read that for myself in the tablet, but I'm taking their word for it from my source material on this tablet. But the cuneiform instruction here, cuneiform text of Nebuchadnezzar, recording his genealogy, his titles, and his reverence for the gods Marduk and Nebo. And this is what underlies, for the, for the uh, sake of our studies, it underlies the book of Daniel. This is what foreshadows his own divine judgment, how Daniel is going to lead him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, how he is going to be humbled from his false gods. Different applications there. In any event, it's kind of fun when archaeology supports everything we find in the Bible. And uh, here's, by the time we reach the Assyrian and the Babylonian era of that first millennium BC, we are on as solid uh, dating grounds as you could possibly get, and we have all the historical cooperation you might possibly imagine. Now, as we look at verses 3 and 4, here's the point that's being made False idols are burdens to be carried. You know, false idols are burdens to be carried. And the best thing, of course, about making something that's huge and impressive and, a, a, you know, why do we have the term monument, okay? A monument is monumental. It's, it's, it's massive. It's large, which is very, very impressive, but it's also very inconvenient. It is, it's awkward to move. <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult. It becomes a burden. And you're going to need a lot of help, and you're going to need some beasts of burden, and you're going to need some animals and some carts, and uh, they themselves become burdensome. Okay. However, the one true God is the faithful one who has borne and carried Israel from birth to the graying years. And so the imagery here is, is quite stri- uh, striking, and I, I find it precious. Uh, do you want a God that you have to carry around, or do you want the God that can carry you? All right. Who do you want to pray to? Who do you think is going to help you in times of trouble? 
And so we have verses 3 and 4 here as well. Listen to me, O house of Jacob. How about the God you can listen to? You want to listen to a monument? What's it going to say? Has it been speaking lately? It can't speak. It can't hear. And you've got to carry it around from place to place. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, and all the remnant of the house of Israel. You who have been born by me from birth. Remember me? Okay? I'm the one that used to carry you around. You who have been born by me from birth and have been carried from the womb, as we say, he's not done. They may think he's done with them, but he's not done with them. Even to their old age, even to their graying years, God will continue to be with the nation of Israel. I like the Charles Dyer quote. I I stole a quote from Merrill F. Unger. No, I'm sorry, Charles Dyer and Eugene Merrill. He said, there are two kinds of gods in this world. The kind you carry and the one who carries you. (laughs) Isn't that great? I think that is right on target. Absolutely. Because when it comes down to it, every idol that's out there is one of our own manufacture. It's one of our own choosing. It's the God that we make for ourselves. It's the one that we find convenient. We want a God in our image instead of us operating in His image. We want a God that... um, Well, we want one that's convenient enough so that he can take care of us in in bad times um, and near enough that he can come when we shout loud enough, okay, but not too near. (laughs) And we certainly don't want him too involved. We really want him to be hands off and leave us alone for the most part because we're busy having our own kind of fun. We're busy serving ourselves and doing what we want to do. Obviously, when that ends not well, when that ends poorly, and we, and we end up in trouble, and then we want a convenient God again that can come to our rescue. So we're, functionally, what are we doing? We're just living like our own personal book of judges. We're living like our own personal roller coaster of up and down, up and down, up and down. And every time we're under bondage to the Philistines or whoever, we cry out for a deliverer, and he sends Jephthah or Samson or Gideon or somebody, and he gets us out of that. And then just like Israel, we go right back to idolatry again. It becomes a personal uh, illustration of the book of Judges in so many different ways. All right, now when we get to verse 5, we end up with these rhetorical questions, and I like this. To whom would you liken me? We have four rhetorical questions that incredulously mock any likeness, equality, comparison, or likeness. And likeness is used twice. Um, Four rhetorical questions incredulously mock any likeness, equality, comparison, or likeness. And they're all contained in the poetry here of verse 5. To whom would you liken me? The very utterance of which insults him. The moment you draw a simile or a parallel The moment you draw a comparison, you've just insulted the one that has no comparison. You cannot compare the unique, the one and only, the self-existent I am. He has no peers. So to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? And this is fundamentally the basis of all idolatry. Idolatry is human beings serving the five I wills of Satan. 
Idolatry is human beings that are actively promoting the lies that Satan said when he said, I will be like the Most High God. And so he utters his I wills. He utters his declaration that he will be like the one to whom there is no likeness. Okay? Now God creates us in his likeness. And I want to make sure that we're clear on this. But we in ourselves are not like him. There is no one comparable to him until he makes us to be so in Christ. And that itself kind of becomes its own sermon. This is a verse, I say this frequently on most Sundays, if not all. Um, I, I say that there are moments in every chapter that it just, it, it, I, I, I hate myself for the, the format that, that we have selected in this series. Um, because here's a verse that we could spend weeks on just right here in, the, in this verse. Here's a verse, and I love this. Did I make a slide for this? I did. There are 18 English words to wrap our minds around, only five in the Hebrew. All right? There are 18 English words. When you read verse 5, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? 18 English words to try to wrap our minds around what comes across with just the brevity of five Hebrew words. And the first one's pretty short. The lemi is to whom, all right? And then these four questions, these rhetorical about likening and comparing or making equal and comparing and likening. may not appear like it, but that second word and the fifth word are the same, all right? There's different different uh, verb tenses. And so it hammers home when he says, to whom, all right, to whom, and he says, liken me, make me equal, compare me, make like. He just hits them with question after question after question after question, four of them, and there's no good answer. <laughs> okay? It's not Bell. It's not Nebo. It's not Ishtar. It's not uh, uh, any of these other ones, all right? Sin, one of the gods was named Sin, which I think is appropriate, okay? Or any of the, of the false gods of the Babylonians, pick one, pick all of them. None of them are like the Most High God. And, and the, the beauty of this just comes out. It's kind of fun. It's like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Okay? How many words is that? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's nine words, all right? Four in the Hebrew. Psalm 23 and the brevity of it in, um, in the beauty here. All right, well, enough of that. The stupidity of idols. The stupidity of idols. It's a common theme in this portion. And this is the fourth and final time that he does this. We've seen it three times already. The stupidity of idols is a common theme in Isaiah 40 through 46 in this section of the book. Time and again, for four, really four dominant times, in uh, starting in chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 44, and now for this fourth and final time, we've seen this again and again and again. And it's not a problem to, to look at these again. Uh, they're, they're quite similar. Chapter 40, it's eight, verses 18 through 20. They get rather insulting. It's not very... Uh, postmodern of the Lord to speak this way. He uh, probably wouldn't handle things too well in our culture. 
in terms of tolerance and multiculturalism and all the other things that <laughs> oh, this world tries to cram down our throats. Uh, how about we should just appreciate the vibrant tapestry of this great uh, variety of, of uh, cultures. Well, God has no such delusions, all right? There is true worship of reality, and there is demonic adherence to the false uh, gods of this age. So in Isaiah 40, verses 18 through 20, he says, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare with him? As for the idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith plates it with gold, and a silversmith fashions chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering selects a tree that uh, does not rot. Okay? The problem with idolatry is not everybody can afford the best idols. <laughs> you know, you can, you know, if you can afford it, you, uh, you fork over the gold and, and you get a gold-plated idol. Okay? If you can't quite splurge for that, well, then you go to the silversmith and you can get the, the chains of silver. Okay? If that's kind of beyond your, your uh, tax bracket, well, then you can, uh, you can go for a piece of wood. Okay? Select a tree. At least find one that's not rotting. And then seek out for yourself a skillful craftsman. All right? And hopefully when the whole process is done, he will prepare an idol that will not totter. <laughs> okay? That's Isaiah 40 and verse 20. The best you can do is have a craftsman create uh, an idol that is able to stand up without falling over. Do you not know? Have you not heard? I love this. There's so much uh, in this. So I sk- Skip over these verses. Get down to verse 25. To whom then will you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. Okay, you understand behind every idol is a demon or a fallen angel. Uh, the very stars of the universe, the stars are representative of the, of the angels themselves. Well, who made the stars? The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So that's chapter 40, as God rebukes the idols. Chapter 41, there's more insults. There's more uh, mocking, derision. 41, 6 and 7, also 21 through 24. (laughs) And so uh, human beings trying to get together. And as long as, you know, as long as... Human beings can kind of get along, pat their neighbor on the back and say, it's okay, I'm here for you, you're here for me, I got your back. Each one helps his neighbor, each says to his brother, be strong. So the craftsman encourages the smelter, and he who smooths metal with a hammer encourages him who beats with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good, and he fastens it with nails so that it will not totter. Okay, so they work together, and uh, they, the division of labor here is, is important, and I think it's remarkable what humanity can achieve with division of labor and cooperation and capitalism and other things. There's, there's forces at work that do amazing things. But when it's all said and done, it's still man-made. Even with cooperation, it's still man-made. And so you come down the same chapter and you get to verses 21 through 24, and again, it's the mocking. Present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. He's not impressed with these idols. These idols really aren't talking much. They're certainly not declaring the end from the beginning. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. 
I love this. To me, this is, this is the beauty of our evangelism, the beauty of our apologetics, the, the beauty of who we are as those who love God and trust His Word and, and can point to His Word. We can, we can sit down with an unbeliever on the street and just say, hey, look at this. 700 years before it happened, the prophet Isaiah said, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Let me tell you about Joseph and Mary and the babe in the manger. All right, let me tell you about the God who writes these things in advance. And let me tell you about why the virgin conceived and bore a son. Why did sinless humanity have to walk this earth? In any event, it's, uh, it's useful. It's, it's powerful. And only God can do this. It, God's prophecy uh, exposes the false idols for what they are. He says in verse 23, Declare the things that are going to come afterward that we may know that you are God's. You know, Islam's got this whole advanced eschatology they've charted out. Uh, let me tell you, you want a clue? It's not going to happen. <laughs> okay? That we may know that you are God's. Indeed, do good or evil. Pick one. <laughs> that we may anxiously look about us in fear together. Behold, you are of no account. Your work amounts to nothing. And he who chooses you is an abomination. You know, God has what has an account and what has no account. And this is vital. This comes across into the New Testament. You know, believers that take one another to court and sue one another to solve our problems. He says, you are standing before a judge who is of no account to the church, to the body of Christ. You're appealing to a secular court and he is of no account to the body of Christ. I find that interesting. God calls them no accounts right here in this passage. So there's the rebuke in chapter 41. The uh, rebuke in chapter 44, the mocking and the derision. It's the bulk of the chapter. I don't want to read all the verses and get bogged down with this. But in 44, verse 7, see, verse 6, Thus says Yahweh, the the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Tzivayoth, I am the first and I am the last. There is no God besides me. As the Alpha to Omega, He is the only one that preceded time and every other angel is created within the bounds of time. And like us, we may exist on into eternity future, but none of us were around back in eternity past. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let Him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. That's an angelic reference, by the way, in the pre-Adamic earth. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? (laughs) Have I not long since announced it? That's why I try not to get too excited every time this latest and greatest book comes out and hits the shelves, right? There's some craze going on right now about some kind of a a soldier thing with armor and war and whatever, which, you know, gets my attention because I like armor and dragons and people dying and stuff like that. But the the whole craze just seems to me like it's a a pop culture wave that's going to come and go and it'll be, you know, replaced by something else that comes up down the road. I, I try not to get too hot and bothered and tossed around by these, these, um, these waves of things. You can come to a verse like this and say, well, has God not long since announced it? <laughs> you know, this, is, uh, this has been around for a while. I'd rather just preach this for the rest of my life when it comes to, uh, when it comes to that. Is there any God beside me? Remember, uh, this was just a couple of weeks ago. I love this. 
Is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock? I know of none. I know of none. And that testimony is coming from the omniscient God of the universe. The God who knows everything says, I don't know about this other so-called God you guys keep talking about. See, that's why you have to be omniscient to be an atheist. Different, uh, different applications there. Because if you are not omniscient, you cannot make this statement that I know of none. There are no other gods besides Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. Because the God who knows everything says, I don't know of any other God besides me. All right, we had fun with that two weeks ago. And now to today, today's passage, Isaiah 46, the final of the taunts, the final of the insults. Because really, he's the one that's been insulted. He's the one that's been insulted. It's like if, you know, I got together with Michael Jordan and started to talk about our basketball skills. Okay, you know, Michael Jordan and I have some pretty incredible basketball skills. How insulting is that? Okay. The moment you do this, and I think this is the nature of what Satan does. He knows, I think by this time he's learned, he's been trying for thousands of years to be like God and it's not been working for him. However, if you turn it around, if you can make him like you, it's the same thing, right? You win either way. So either Satan has to become like God or Satan has to prove that God is just as big a liar as Satan is. If he can prove God in one lie, if Satan can prove God in one lie, then he can claim victory and say, I win, because you're a liar just like me. And I think that's his only hope at this point, because it's not working for him. Okay? Even after the church is raptured, here's a preview. When the church is raptured, God the Father takes the gloves off, removes all restraint from Satan. Satan will have empowerment he's never had before. And he will be able to delude the whole world in ways he can't do today. I find that scary. Because I'm looking at a world today that's completely diluted and it's going to get worse. He'll even be able to stage a resurrection of his Antichrist beloved son. So, compare ourselves to him. To whom will you compare, will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we should be alike? I like the comparisons, by the way. This is a Mashal. Did you spot that? Dan might have spotted that. The mashal right there? The mashal is a proverb. The mashal is a simile, is a, is a likeness, okay? Where something is like something, and this is what we have in our proverbs or something that we have in, uh, in the uh, Beatitudes. All right, so to whom will you liken me? Those, verse 6, those who lavish gold from the purse. All right, so you can be proud of your wealth, you got money to burn. You got money to throw around. Good for you. Um, but that gold came from somewhere. Okay, you didn't make it. <laughs> You've accumulated a lot of it, but uh, it's coming from a purse, so it's a finite amount. Or you weigh silver on the scale. You hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Well, good for you. And they bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it upon the shoulder and carry it. Because obviously you're not going to stay in the goldsmith's shop. That's not a temple. That's, you want to take it home with you. you. You paid for it. You want to take your God home with you. You want to put it in, an idol, in, a, in a temple somewhere or in a shrine or somewhere significant. And that means you've got to carry it around. 
And so uh, it does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. <laughs> okay? And you remember when, when Elijah was contending with the prophets of Baal? And they were cutting themselves and screaming and dancing and doing all this stuff, trying to get Baal's attention, and the fire was never coming to, to light the sacrifice on fire. And Elijah was just teasing him horribly. He's like, well, shout louder. Maybe he fell asleep. Or maybe he's in the bathroom. Or maybe, you know, there were a lot of insults there. And it's similar to this. Similar to this. So you can cry to it. It's not going to answer. You cannot deliver from his distress. So it's pretty useless. Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. And here he talks about he does what he chooses to do and no one can stop him. It's a, uh, it's a beautiful encouragement. Now, uh, let's see. They lifted up on the verse 7. They lifted upon the shoulder. They carried. They set it there. Cannot answer. Cannot deliver. Yeah, useless. What's it going to do? Okay, what's it going to do? Remember this and listen. Verses 8 through 13 really form the bulk of what I want to challenge us, us with today. And I might have to say it twice. I might have to say it three times. I might have, before we break for communion, I might have to go through this again and again and again and again. Because that's how we learn. That's how God pounds it through our thick skulls. <laughs> through repetition, through teaching us, through reminding us, through causing us to listen to it again and again and again and again. And so it says in verse 8, remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. More name calling, but this time he's calling us. This time he's calling Israel, his covenant nation. The people who should know better, the people who have been taught And yet they have to bring to their remembrance what they have been taught. Just because you heard it once, or even you heard it a hundred times, if if you're not actively bringing it to the forefront of your thinking, then it's gathering dust somewhere. It's sitting in a drawer. You haven't seen that for years. And I don't remember what drawer it's in, or what cabinet it's in, or what room the cabinet is in. If I can remember the room, I can remember the cabinet, I can remember the drawer... And then I open it up, and then I dig to the bottom of the drawer, and I thought, oh, that's what I was looking for. Understand, for a lot of Christians, that's, that's their scripture memory. That's their pattern for doctrinal understanding. I heard a lesson once somewhere about Daniel in a lion's den. I'm not sure exactly what that means. All right. Yeah, they're not living in the Word, Okay. It can't be stored away in a closet somewhere. It's got to be active. And so we have a pattern here. And I like this. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. Why is he giving it in a backwards order? And from ancient times, things which have not been done. He's been doing this for a while. He's been doing this. He's been saying, here's what's coming, here's what's coming, here's what's coming, here's what's coming saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You down to verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded. 
I want to wrap my name into some of these verses here. Who are far from righteousness. See, here's the point. Some of us get complacent. We say, well, I've arrived. Okay? I've, 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 I've done enough. I've learned enough. I know enough. I've, I've uh, served enough. It's somebody else's turn. Come on, I'm tired. Somebody else can do this. Who are far from righteousness. Where, where is he taking us? What's the point in this whole sojourn? Are we looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? Well, we're looking for it, but we're not there yet. And so today is a day to continue learning, continue growing, continue hearing, listening, remembering, combining Scripture with Scripture. And I think this is the pattern that we ought to um, embrace. Really, four activities. I find four imperatives in this section. Remember, recall it in heart, and that's different. It's, It's put in poetic parallelism, but it's a different term and it's a different concept. Remembering is one thing. Recalling it to heart is something else. Then the repetition on remember and then listen. The blessings of cycling Bible doctrine through our memory center. What a privilege. Okay? Now as far as coming live and assembling together in in the assembly of Austin Bible Church, there's only a finite number of times you can do that each week. I'm sorry we don't do more. Okay, but we've got two sessions this morning. We've got two sessions this evening. We've got a Wednesday morning. We've got a, we got a Wednesday night. And you can come six times a week and listen. But how many times a week can you stay home and remember? See how that works? You can do that all day, every day. You can do this every hour on the hour. You can recall things to mind, and you're supposed to. I hope this is not the only hour of the week that, uh, you know, something roughly spiritual crosses your thinking. Okay? Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a God somewhere. I'll spend about an hour each week kind of thinking about maybe what He might expect of me. And then Monday through Saturday, I'll go back to my, uh, go back to my normal mode of existence, which doesn't pay much attention to God for the most part. Okay? So the blessings of cycling Bible doctrine through our memory center and treasuring such doctrine in our heart. I think this recall to heart takes place and matching this with the, um, with the hiding in the heart from Psalm 119. Treasuring such doctrine in our heart. Those blessings don't ever preclude additional listening. You can remember and remember and remember and remember. I mean, if you've been saved, if you're, if you're 90 years old or 80 years old and you've been saved for 70 years and you've heard a lot of sermons, you've heard a lot of doctrine, you've learned a lot, you can remember a lot. Or you can also forget a lot, <laughs> okay? Because yes, the older you are, the more you have to remember, but also the more you have to forget. Is there ever a point that you can say, I've learned enough, I can stop listening I don't need anything new. I don't have to keep going on Sunday morning. And for goodness sakes, I don't need... Will you quit teaching the basics? How many times do I got to go through the basics? At least one more. Okay? Are you still on earth? Okay? At least one more. And maybe the next time we teach basic doctrinal studies will be the last time we teach basic doctrinal studies. But if it is the last time we teach basic doctrinal studies, it won't be because I think it's sufficient. It'll be because the trumpet sounded and we've gone to heaven. 
I'll never stop teaching basics. I'll never stop teaching 1 John 1, 9. You say, how many times do I need to learn rebound or or confession of sin? Well, at least one more. Okay? We always need to continue listening. We can never just say, well, I know that. I can remember that. Because there may be occasions when I can remember it, but I choose not to remember it for whatever reason, and that's wrong. We should call it to our remembrance. So, we have Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12. I love these. Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12. And maybe there's not a, there's not a face-to-face live Bible class on a Monday morning, but you're hungry and you want to feed. Well, you can remember. You can call to mind what you've learned this morning. You can review your notes. You can, actually, we got the website 24-7, right? The MP3 is just sitting there, minding their own MP3 business. Psalm 77, verses 11 and 12. Yeah, what do they do when no one's listening to them? You ever think about that? I wonder sometimes, like a night at the museum, do they just run around and do stuff? (laughs) Psalm 77 Verse 11 says, I shall remember the deeds of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and muse on your deeds. This is fruitful. This is encouraging. This is edifying. It is a blessing. And and the more time you spend doing this, the less time you spend preoccupied with your own problems or your ungrateful husband or your jerk boss or, or whatever test you're going through. These stupid bills that keep showing up in the mail. Okay? Meditate on the faithfulness of the Lord. Remember His deeds. Consider the one who, uh, you know, the the fourth man that appeared in the fire that got uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of that. He's still here. All right? He gets us through what He's taken us through. There's a benefit to that. Lamentations 3. Here's the most depressing chapter in the entire Bible. Lamentations, chapter 3. The whole book is named Lamentations. It's not a happy book. All right, and in chapter 3, Jeremiah is convinced that uh, he's the the bullseye and God's arrows are, are hitting everywhere. Some of these earlier verses, he is uh, just depressed as anything. In verse 12, he says, He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter my inward parts. I've become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. Remember all the real prophets like Daniel and Ezekiel, they got carried off to Babylon. Jeremiah was left behind in Jerusalem with all the, the phonies. All the false prophets, all the, the servants of Satan, all the, the prosperity gospel guys telling, lying to the king, telling him, hey, you're going to be great. And so uh, in verse 16, he's made me to cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. Have you reached a point in your life where you think, I'm never going to be happy ever again? I don't remember what peace even was. Okay. And yet, he starts to cycle the doctrine in his soul. He starts to think through what he knows to be true. 
He says in verse 19, Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Bring it to your active thinking. Don't just let it drift somewhere in your subconscious. Don't let it just drift, drift somewhere in your memory center or something that you used to know and haven't thought about for a while. Bring it to your active forefront. Bring it to your daily attention. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease. His compassions never fail. I just quit looking at them. But they didn't stop. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And here's one of our most beautiful hymns that we sing. And it comes in the most depressing chapter of the whole Bible. And it comes right in the midst of that is when Jeremiah stops his pity party and says, wait a minute, God is faithful. He starts to cycle the doctrine in his soul. Treasuring such doctrine in our heart is required. I mean, Psalm 119, this is going to keep us from sinning. Thy word I have hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It is a treasured place. You put it in your treasury. You put it somewhere secure, somewhere uh, not to be plundered, somewhere that uh, is, is the, the inner part of your being. That's what the heart is all about. All right. How about Colossians 3.16? Colossians 3.16. The richness of this. I quote this a lot. I don't often tell you it's Colossians 3. But it is. Let the word of Christ richly, or let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. That's 3.15. And let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let it happen. And I love this. This is a passive imperative. Let it happen. How do you let it happen? Right? Let it. I love let it happen. Let, uh, I can tell, uh, sisters like to slap each other, right? And so I, I could tell a sister, let your little sister slap you across the face. All right? Now, it doesn't take a lot to obey that command. You just got to sit there and let it happen, right? And the little sister is going to be very anxious to, to, do, to do it. But that's the difference between an active command and a passive command. Now, I could order the little sister. I could say, slap your sister across the face. And that's an active imperative. That requires the little sister to do something. And, and she probably will because it sounds fun. And, and it's an active imperative, meaning she has to do something in order to obey that. But in a passive command, let your sister slap you. What does that mean? Well, it's going to happen. So just wait for it when it does, right? Don't take steps to keep it from happening. That's important. Don't run from it. Don't, you know, don't block or don't run or don't, don't knock her down first or whatever else. See, people do things to keep other things from happening. And when we do that, we're defying the passive imperatives, such as to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Because that's what it's designed to do. God has designed the word to not just be swallowed, to not just be chewed and swallowed and just sit there not doing nothing. It's supposed to dwell richly when it gets there, right? I love the imagery on this. Let it dwell richly within you. That's what it's designed to do. With all wisdom, 
teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and with hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. If you're taking in the Word of God on a regular basis and you are allowing it to dwell richly within you, then it, when it comes back out, is a pleasant experience. Okay, this is where it defies the, the gastronomical metaphor. Okay, we take it in, we swallow it, it dwells richly within us, and then we get to share it with others. And it's a very pleasant thing when we do. And we can express it from our soul. It's not hard. You can tell. You can tell if somebody is living in the Word of God by how readily it comes to their lips. How readily it comes to their lips. You know, a politician is asked, what's your favorite Bible verse? And he can't give one. And so he says, well, I don't like to give one. It's, it's personal to me. Okay? That's code. That's, 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 that's a cover. Okay? If you're living in the Word of God, then very readily, you can give one or two or ten or six. Let me give you a handful. Here's some verses I like. And I love to talk about it. I love to talk about my children. I love to talk about my wife. I love to talk about my church. I love to talk about those things that are precious to me, to the Word of God. Let me tell you about the Word of God. But if you find someone that, man, getting a verse out of them is like pulling teeth, okay, Coworkers that you show up on a Monday morning, you can't get them to talk. Hey, what was your service about? I don't remember. What was, the, what was, what was he preaching about? I don't remember. Some kind of sin, I think. <laughs> Whatever. Okay? And, and, you know, I used to do this in the jail and bring conversations to an end. Because they, they want to talk football. They want to talk weather, politics. They want to talk about the latest, you know, kitten video on Facebook or something. They want to talk about anything but the Word of God. And so they can talk about, uh, man, the UT Longhorns. What was, what, was the, what was the best touchdown they scored yesterday? There were some fun ones. And so what's your favorite quarterback? What's your favorite running back? Blah, blah, blah. And then one time, just to be ordinary, I asked my fellow Christian, I said, who was your favorite apostle? <laughs> Boy, that dampened everything down <laughs> real quick. He talked about, he liked Paul and I liked Peter. We talked a little bit about two apostles and then that's it, that's there was an awkward silence after he was done and I was done and there's just a room full of sheriff's department officers sitting there looking at one another and then finally one guy got it back to football again and said well what about what about linebackers and they started going back into football players again if the word of Christ is richly dwelling within you then you can regurgitate it back up share it as a blessing. This is what we're commanded to do. And all of this, as much as we cycle, as much as we remember, as much as we meditate and dwell and communicate and speak to, we never stop listening. It comes back again to listen. Listen, listen, listen. None of this activity in the Word of God ever precludes additional listening. And so in Isaiah 46, we have it. The listen imperatives, in fact, is going to be followed up in chapter 51 because there's more to listen to. When they get to the millennial kingdom, they'll have more to listen to. They'll have more to listen to because they will have Christ on the throne and they'll have animal sacrifices again restored. They'll have prophets to listen to and there'll be new doctrine that will come preparing them for the new heavens and the new earth. 
But 46.3, listen to me, O house of Jacob. Listen to me. 46.12, listen to me, you stubborn-minded. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded. In chapter 51, there's more listening. Verse 1, verse 7. Listen, listen, listen. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and the quarry from which you were dug. Verse 7, listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. And I I like that. Back when he was calling them stubborn-minded, he told them to listen. And here he calls them, you who know my righteousness. He still says, keep listening. Do not fear the reproach of men or be dismayed at their revilings. And we get into verses 50, uh, chapter 51 and following, and he keeps commanding, listening, listening, listening. We get to chapter 3, and he says, is anybody listening? Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Those questions come after all of these listening imperatives. The eternal sovereignty of God is seen in His unchallenged planning and doing. I'm going to have to give you some homework here as we have communion today. The eternal sovereignty of God is seen in His unchallenged planning and doing. In 46.10, my purpose will be established. See, only the I am can utter an unconditional I will. And everything is fulfilled. Every I will he utters gets done. Saying, my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure. No purpose of God's can be thwarted. We saw that in chapter 14. We see that in Numbers 23, 19. Job testified to this. Job 23, 13. In the New Testament, we understand it's the eternal counsel of His will. He does all things according to His eternal purpose. Ephesians 1, 11, Ephesians 3, 11. You know, it's an eternal purpose. He put it in motion before the foundation of the world and never once has he had to switch gears and, and kind of scramble, go to plan B or something, right? You know, like a quarterback when the, the game plan kind of falls apart. <laughs> the, the, the play that was called isn't working out too well. And, and so he's scrambling out of the pocket and he's running around like a, like a you know, a guy that doesn't want to get hit by those heavy people. And, and so his plan is being, he's, he's just winging it looking to find, make some kind of play, get some kind of yardage out of a disaster. God's never doing that. God never once has switched from plan A. It's the only plan he's got, the only plan he needs, because he is who he is. He is the I am, and every I will statement he fulfills. We, on the other hand, and Satan, we can say all kinds of I wills, and it doesn't happen. And a lot of our I wills become, I'm sorry, they become, well, I meant to, or I tried. I really intended to. I just, you know, back then I could afford it. I just I can't afford that anymore. We get overruled. Uh, circumstances change. Other things happen. Uh, well, you know, so we got an awful lot of I wills that become maybe next time. God, every I will happens. How faithful is our God? So there's your homework. Isaiah 46, 10 and 11, Isaiah 14, 24 and 27, Numbers 23, 19, Job 23, 13, Ephesians 1, 11, Ephesians 3, 11. And my favorite principle of all of this is the name calling. 
God's children are not perfect. They are being perfected. God's children are not perfect. They are being perfected. Even as God calls them stubborn-minded transgressors. God calls them stubborn-minded transgressors, and yet He's teaching them the Word of God whereby they are being perfected in the truth. It's just mind-boggling. The media likes to point out hypocrisy among Christians. Say, ooh, look at that. You say you're a Christian, and look at you. You've got, uh, you've got an account on this website for adultery. Okay? Well, who ever said that Christians were perfect? No Christian I know says, hey, we're perfect. We go to church so we can learn the Word of God, so we can get closer to Him, so that we are molded in, we're being perfected as a process between now and eternity. So God calls them stubborn-minded transgressors, even as He faithfully tells them, listen now, listen now. Listen to what I have to say. All right, so next chapter, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. And that'll be next week. Father, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Father, I do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessings we have. I thank you, Father, that when we are stubborn, when we are stiff-necked, when we are rebels, you continue to come to us and say, now listen. And you faithfully minister your word and you correct us with your discipline to bring us back into your word. And I thank you for that. I thank you for your eternal glory that you manifest in time through your son. I thank you, Father, for the privilege and delight that it is to think back, to cycle the doctrine. And that's what we do in communion, Father. We are recalling to our mind. We are re-treasuring within our heart, recalling to our heart the truth of your son who went to the cross to accept your wrath and your judgment, to accept our sin imputed to his account so that, Father, we might have his righteousness imputed to our account. And I thank you that you've given us this ritual whereby we can come together in the body of Christ and, and accomplish what Isaiah 46 talks about, remembering, recalling to mind, remembering, and listening Father, I pray that we might be humble before you today that not only do we recall to mind and remember the truth we have learned, but we would be also be listening as you lead us, Father, in the paths of righteousness for your name's sake. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.